Hi, my name is Chris Roth. I live in downtown Hi. LA. Um, I wanted to thank you guys for taking the steps to implement actual rent control in the unincorporated areas within the county. That is a huge step. Uh, it would be great if we were able to expand that a whole lot more in the city itself. Uh, I'm also part of the uh, Services Not Sweeps campaign. I'm a member of Ground Game Los Angeles. We do a lot of organizing up in Hollywood. I also work with K-Town for All, uh, dealing with doing some basic outreach and trying to make sure that the people that are on the streets realize that not everybody thinks that they're going to be treated like criminals. One of the guys that I met with just a couple of weeks ago was talking about how Awful it is that it's the sanitation departments that are out there at the head of these sweeps that make everybody feel like they are human garbage rather than human beings. And changing that aspect of things would make a huge impact on the lives of these people. Also, putting in temporary or portable toilets and showers is not something that's going to cost a ton of money, but it will go a very, very, very long way toward addressing the public health crisis that is our current homelessness epidemic. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about this week's primary results from City Council District 12 special election, uh, the countywide LAUSD parcel tax measure EE, and the biggest story of the week, the 2019 point in time homeless count in Los Angeles County. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's a little bit up and a little bit down. I'm not going to lie. It's, uh, it's sort of been all over the board. Uh, we had one good sort of uh, quote-unquote win, and then a huge loss, and then uh, something that just like hurts all of our souls and is making international news because our homeless crisis is finally popping up on the radar of people outside of LA. Uh, other than that, it's getting hot as hell out here, so uh, summer's back with a vengeance, so I'm not looking forward to that one. But uh, you want to go ahead and hop into CD12, and we'll at least talk about like the good election? Sure, we can start there. Uh, all right, so Lorraine Lundquist and John Lee are officially going to be advancing to a runoff election. This is huge. Uh, city Council District 12 is the only remaining seat that isn't controlled by a Democrat on the L.A. City Council. Uh, Lorraine is a solidly progressive movement candidate and would be a very welcome voice at City Hall. And uh, we, should, we, should definitely, we should definitely mention that uh, John Lee... He's not just some Johnny come lately off the street. He was Mitch Englander's oh, yeah, no, former chief of staff uh, who uh -huh. left after he was accused of sexual harassment. Uh, he was ultimately dropped from the lawsuit accusing him of sexual harassment. The city remained a party huh. to the lawsuit. The city ended up settling for around $75,000. Uh, it was never disclosed exactly what happened. The woman who uh, made the allegations works for a nonprofit in L.A. and has been fairly open about talking about the fact that she felt like she was wronged and that John Lee deserves to be held accountable. Um, it's it's pretty telling that the city just went ahead and paid off the lawsuit. Um, it's also unclear as to you know why John Lee is still continuing to run, but he he definitely felt like he deserved this seat because we know in city council we have this cycle where a council member passes the seat to their chief of staff. You know, even for oh, council members that we see as like you know more progressive, like Mike Bonin was Bill Rosendahl's chief of staff. Mitch O'Farrell, not yep. trying to say he's progressive, he was Eric Garcetti's <laughs> chief of staff. Like, this is kind of a cycle Correct. we've seen in L.A., and it, it was very much fed by the cycle of off-year elections where city council members got to pass their seat along to whoever they wanted because they were seeing, like, 10% voter turnout. And it was much easier for yeah. people to know, and just to vote for a name that they knew or know a name that they recognized and just be like, oh, who did the last guy who represented me uh, happen to say I should vote for? Oh, he said I should vote for Mitch. Well, I can trust Eric. Garcetti uh, and other terrible exactly. voting advice. 
<laughs> so, yeah, Lorraine secured 6,145 votes, uh, which was 19.01% of the total as of the uh, closing of all of the precincts on Tuesday night. John Lee took 6,195 votes, which was 19.17%. So there were just 50 votes between them. Uh, and only 32,317 total votes counted as of the time of this recording. Doing um, some, as some back of the napkin math mm-hmm. here on voter turnout. So it looks like voter turnout in that district was almost 20%. It was just a little bit shy of 20%. That's good. Because uh, it's about 250,000 people in the district. Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when Eric Garcetti won his, uh, his seat in 2017, he saw about uh, 11% turnout in the city of LA. And, you know, so about 8% of us actually oh, voted to... Depressing. Yeah, about 8% percent of us voted to keep him the mayor uh but that's a pretty uh, good turnout for like a special election that kind of came out of nowhere was planned on very short notice but also doing some some more back of the napkin math uh so 1.7 million dollars was spent in total in the election 2.2 million dollars was raised by all of the candidates these aren't any one candidate uh the biggest mm-hmm. spender out there was scott abrams who came in third now he was a, a deputy to adam schiff who's the congressman uh who's made quite a name for himself by going after donald trump for the last you know mm-hmm. however many years it seems to be all of schiff's stick is you know taking money from big ag big defense and then you know yelling at the president all the time uh but it, it, if we do the math real quick here we see that Lord Lorraine had about a quarter million dollars that she took in. Uh, John Lee had about $360,000, spent about $80,000 more than Lorraine. So those 50 votes, they cost him like $1,500 a piece. Like those were an expensive 50 votes for John Lee to, to capture. And even then, like, it's not assured that he's going to maintain that lead uh, because we've still got like late ballots coming in, right? Yeah, exactly. So as you've you've definitely heard us say this before, if you've been listening to us talk about other elections, uh, those numbers are going to continue to shift around in the coming couple of weeks as the uh, the county registrar goes through the remaining absentee ballots, uh, which are those that arrived after the election date. Remember, you only have to have postmarked your ballot on the day of the election. So if it got mailed in and it takes a couple of days and it all shows up and then they count them all. Um, and then also any provisional ballots. So in case like there was some kind of an issue with your voter registration or you, your name didn't show up, but then they have to verify that you are in fact registered, there's a whole bunch of stuff that ends up happening. So there could very well be a, a decent number of folks who, whose votes are going to be counted in the next week and a half, two weeks. And once those votes come in, it's entirely possible that uh, Lorraine could end up being the, uh, the winner of this primary election, uh, which would be fantastic. Well, and but not that being not, the winner not of an this election, winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, but not that being the winner of this election gets you anything, like unless you crest fifty percent. Yeah. But like finishing Correct. first with less than fifty percent doesn't get you like anything special for the general. But it is a really, really good sign that you've got a lot of uh, support, and it's also a lot of it's, it's huge a really for good momentum. Yeah, and it's it's a really good sign that Lorraine, who is a political novice, like she's a woman who has mm-hmm. never run for office before, has not served in any political office, uh, was radicalized by the blowout at Aliso Canyon, which poisoned the entire yep. neighborhood of Porter Ranch, and was like, you know, I'm a climate scientist, I should be doing something about this, and then built a grassroots campaign from literally nothing in about six months. And that's insane, especially when you're looking at a special election that took $2.2 million to run. Like, that's not insignificant yeah. money. And if we look at, you know, 
the the sort of back of the napkin math that John Motter did in that knock article, which I'll, I'll link to in the description, it would take maybe fifteen to twenty million dollars to take over all of the city council, um, which is still a lot. We're still That's... talking about a, more than a million dollars per seat, but these are seats that mm-hmm. are bigger than congressional districts, bigger than you know, it's more than two hundred fifty thousand people as constituents, which. There's other arguments to be made about, like, we shouldn't have a city council that represents that many people. Like, this is why the 15 little mayor's system is broken um, and why we Mm -hmm. shouldn't have people who essentially control their district without any oversight for five years. Uh, But, you know, all of that aside, this is a really good argument that people power can overcome money power. Absolutely. And so for a little bit of a ground game context with all this, seeing as you know, we are part of ground game and that is what we do. uh, Our team was working in coordination with uh, Food and Water Action, knocked on over 10,000 doors over the last eight weeks, interacting with nearly 2000 voters and securing almost a thousand yes votes for Lorraine. Uh, Knocking on doors is how you get this done, folks. Face to face, or you lose the race. Uh, some Hell more yeah. back of the napkin math. Look, folks, we go to a lot of cocktail bars. We have a lot of napkins. This is where we do the math. <laughs> but uh, some back of the napkin math that uh, that that Ace did was for our total expenditures on Lorraine's campaign, Food and Water Action, and Ground Game Los Angeles accounted for about five percent of those expenditures. We are running an independent expenditure, which is sort of like a pack, but a little bit different. You know, you can't coordinate with the campaign, yeah. but you can spend money to push a candidate or a ballot issue. Uh, so in this case, we're running an, an independent expenditure through Food and Water Action and Ground Game LA. Uh, but for that 5%, we accounted for about 15% of her votes. That's kind of insane. Like, And it, it, it sounds cheap, but there's a lot of extra work that goes into this. You know, Houses up in this area of town are far apart. You're putting in a lot of miles. Uh, you're definitely closing those rings on your Apple Watch every time you're going out to mm-hmm. Canvas. But it has a oh, yeah. good turnout. And it's also a, one thing that shocks me, and I know this from talking to other canvassers on this election, is that you talk to a lot of voters, especially up in these suburbs where people are what I call house rich, where like that's the only asset they've got. Uh, they don't talk to a lot of other people on a regular basis. There were you know elderly folks I talked to during the Katie Hill campaign where I'm pretty sure I was the only human contact they had for a couple of weeks. And it's, it's weird because aside from being able to lobby people and be like, hey, this is a candidate who will go out there and will fight for you and is going to do the work that we need done, it just feels good on a human level to like, like spend 10 or 15 minutes talking to someone who hasn't had a real conversation in a bit. Um, And it's also weird because it shows how alienated and broken these suburbs really are. Um, It's also weird to walk around in the high desert-ish area up there and just see these gigantic energy sucks of homes and realize, you know, John Lee doesn't have good ideas about how to fix this. Lorraine Lundquist, like a scientist with a data-driven and evidence-based background, will have ideas about how to fix this stuff. And it really kind of... more scientists in office. Yeah, it really, you know, kind of drew like a stark contrast between what these two front runners were running for and what kind of future for LA they'll build. Now, before we close this one out, I want to give some really, really big shout outs to Carlos Amador and Stella Malloy... Absolutely. I cannot pronounce her last name, Malolian, <laughs> uh, who is uh, from Lane, uh, the Los Angelinos for uh, a 
Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, uh, and Carlos Amador, mm -hmm. who does a lot of immigration work and works with Spanish language communities. Both of them ran also insurgent progressive campaigns. Both of them were a yes. door-knocking model. Both of them were pretty much political novices also, and they did respectively well. I think 9% for Stella and 5% for Carlos, which for campaigns that were running on very small money and a very small number of volunteers still managed to turn out a couple thousand voters on their behalf. And that's also amazing. Like, these are people who are pushing yes, the is. movement forward. And it's something that, you know, we we lose a lot in our national discourse around elections because we see it as the only win is a win. And when we're trying to shift people into thinking about movement politics and thinking about yeah. politics beyond just one election, you realize, like, you're not going to win every election. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have run. That doesn't mean those money, that money or those volunteer hours were wasted. You're pushing Correct. a conversation that isn't out there. You're pushing the discourse to the left. You're letting people know that there are options. And that's how we overcome this voter disenfranchisement. That's how we overcome voter apathy is by giving people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. Like, you need to be inspiring and you need to have an actual message and you need to show them that this matters beyond just this vote. That it's not show up every couple of years, cast a ballot, and then go home patting yourself on the back. Like... You don't get brownie points for voting just like you don't get brownie points for breathing. You still need to do it, and good job on you for doing it, but it's not the end of this. It's just one it step in more. this process as we build more and it's more power. co-governance, folks. How and you build movement politics, and then you get candidates into office, and then you keep the dialogue going, and you make sure that they're doing their job. Exactly. It's it's always a constant conversation. It's one where hopefully as we get more movement politics going and we get more people thinking about radical ways to reorganize government, we can see L.A. be less hostile. Like the, the matching funds for L.A. City Council goes a long way to helping a candidate like Lorraine Lundquist overcome the money barrier. But it's still not enough because you still have to be pretty, you know, economically secure to run an election. You still have to be able to not work for six, nine, or 18 months. You have to be able to staff up. You have to be able to afford that amount of work. And even if you're getting matching funds, you still have to raise money to get those matching funds. So it still leaves a lot of people whose voices should be in government locked out because they just can't afford to run. So Hopefully, as we move forward over the next five or ten years, we can actually get public financing of our campaigns. We can actually get some, you know, guards against having to run a presidential election for, you know, four effing years to be an actual contender. Uh, these are just... Yeah. It not only hurts the candidates, it hurts voters. Like, people just can't be that plugged in for that long. Um, and no, it's, it's, it's really it's extremely broken. taxing on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... so uh, speaking it, of broken mm -hmm. elections... <laughs> oh God, no! We're not going on to measure EE yet, but I, 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 I we will in just one Aww. second. I wanted to say on on CD twelve, uh, it's not over yet. The runoff is going to be held no. on Tuesday, August fourteenth. So if you're in CD twelve, Tuesday, August fourteenth, be there or mail in your ballot before that date. And if you're not in CD twelve and you want to make sure Lorraine Lundquist gets onto City Council, either hit up her can campaign at LorraineForLA.com, just Lorraine for LA, or, or hit us up at Ground Game, hit us up at Food and Water Action, get involved with the Sunrise Los Angeles Hub. All yep. of those groups are going to be out there knocking doors, calling voters, sending mailers, getting people to show up and vote. And there's a good chance that this election, the actual runoff election, is going to be a lower turnout. Like, each vote will count for more. And this is a chance for us wow. to radically reshape City Hall in one election. And I also want to point 
point this out. Lorraine will be only one of three women on the city hall, or in city hall. One of three women. There are 15 seats, and only five, right now only two of those uh, seats are held by women. That is incredibly broken. 50% of our yes, society is. is women. We need to start fixing that basic thing. I'm not a fan of like just add women and stir and that, you know, fights patriarchy. Uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, just adding women to any, any group of like large or any large group of men is going to change things significantly. So if you're looking for reason to vote, if you're looking for reason to come out and like make your voice heard, just a basic equity and representation should totally be at the top of your list. Um, yeah, let's go on to Measure EE before I, I scream really, really loudly and scare the ever-living hell out of my cats here. Uh, do you want to cover what Measure EE was going to do if it had passed? Sure. I mean, the basic gist of it is that Measure EE was intended to raise something like $500 million to support the Los Angeles Unified School District over the coming years. Uh, this was basically a way that the um, the district was planning on funding all of the things that they had agreed to back when the teacher's strike was happening. Uh, and it was going to get 95% of that revenue was going to be generated from uh, commercial properties and uh, industrial properties and it, and just from the, the wealthiest uh, landowners. But uh, they included, for some reason, the final 5% of that was going to be coming from residential properties, which they decided to include. And that really seems to have been the poison pill here because it really opened up this measure to be attacked by everybody who is concerned about property taxes on their homes. Um, so it failed. Uh, it would have had it would have needed to get two thirds of the vote to pass. It secured uh, what was it? Forty five percent. We couldn't even wow. get a bare majority for 50. the kids. Everyone was red for Ed until their wallet would be a tiny bit lighter. Yeah, and to, yeah, to put go this ahead in context, shouting. you know, to, to put this in context, so it was going to charge, you know, uh, 16 cents per square foot um, of improved property. So it's not like just your total square footage. Like if you have like just a bare yard with a shanty on it, that's not going to incur the tax. But if you have like a 10,000 square foot warehouse on a piece of land, then you're looking at $1,600 a year. Now the average home in Los Angeles is 1800 square feet. So the average yep. homeowner would be looking at paying $288 a year to fund education. $288 a year when the median home price in California, or sorry, in Los Angeles is $860,000 a year. I, I am just so totally at a loss over the folks that thought $288 a year was way too much for them to pay. That that was too much to fund education, to fund nurses, to fix our dilapidated buildings that in many cases are a health hazard to our teachers, our staff, and our students. Like, the state of yeah. LAUSD buildings right now is so ridiculously deplorable and bad. It's because of our artificially low property taxes coming out of Prop 13. And this, I think there's a good argument to be made that Garcetti and Butner set up Measure EE to fail. That they ran it in a special election where a lot of people weren't going to show up anyways, like low turnout elections, like this one had 304,000 Angelinos or people within LAUSD show up to vote, which is like 10%-ish of our actual voting population in the city and the, the in LAUSD. Uh, and this was set up in a way where older homeowners would show up and vote. They were almost certain to defeat it, and they were almost certain to not, even if it got the majority, it would need a super majority to pass. 
why they didn't yeah. wait until the primaries in uh, March 2019 or the general election in November 2019, uh, I have no idea. Like this, or sorry, 2020 on both of those. March yeah, March in yeah. March 2020 or November 2020 to run the same bill. Uh, because again, that 500 million wouldn't be raised in a year. It would be raised over the course of 12 years. Uh, this was yes. also a property tax that would expire like that was the other thing that gets me is this was a temporary tax to get us over a hump uh and as LAUSD is losing students because people are being priced out of the city so families aren't living here anymore and we're seeing fewer students we're also seeing less revenue from the state because we have this incredibly stupid formula at the state level that says oh if you have fewer students we just give you less money even if the needs of those students or the needs of maintaining your buildings is greater year over year you get less money because you don't have as yep. many butts in seats and it's this really stupid perverse incentive that our state has uh, that penalizes students who don't show up because maybe they have a disability or maybe they're trying to work to support their family or maybe they're unhoused and they don't have a stable place to sleep every night. And those students, if they don't show up enough, the school district has a reason to kick them out so that the state doesn't penalize the school district for not having that butt in a seat day after day instead of understanding that like that's not a good way to do this math and you just pay for effing education education like every other developed nation on the planet it's yep ah uh, like but prop 13 41st is, in per student spending at this point 41st it, out of 50 states the f wealthiest state in the freaking country and we're 41st in per pupil spending it's just so ridiculously maddening and especially when you look at the root cause of this which is prop 13 like prop 13, prop 13. and property taxes mm. in general low <laughs> property taxes serve the wealthiest like 80% of the gains from prop 13 have not gone to working families and to working homeowners they've gone to wealthy homeowners they've gone to landlords they've gone to commercial property owners yeah uh, and it's there's it's, been a flip we used to get two-thirds of our property taxes in the state came from commercial and industrial property, and one-third came from residential. That was back in 1978 before Prop 13 was passed. Today, it is one-third, less than one-third, that comes from uh, commercial and industrial property. Two-thirds of the property tax is coming from residential homeowners. It is insane because what happens is that people don't sell their businesses or the properties, they, they hide in LLCs. Those properties are not changing hands at nearly the rate that yep. individual homes are changing hands. And because they don't change hands, they don't get any kind of a tax assessment on them. Unless there was like a major construction project that happened on them that triggered a reassessment. But even then they can find ways to get around it, you know, not having permits and stuff. But the point is that these companies are getting this massively, massively subsidized tax break on their property taxes, and we get to suffer for it. Well, and it's, it's also one of these things, and both you and I are fans of Samuel Stein's new book, uh, Capital City, which if you haven't read, I will throw that link in the description too. Like, oh, yeah. Read Get that, that book. effing book. It's so good. But it, it basically builds on Thomas Piketty's findings that insane amounts of wealth from the, the wealthiest 1% on the planet are locked up in property. And so when we talk about taxing the wealthy, a lot of people assume we mean income. But that's California's problem right now is we rely too much on income from the wealthiest people in California. That wealth tends to be tied up in the stock market. When Wall Street oh, yeah. gets a cold, California catches the flu because income yep. taxes vary wildly year over year. 
Property tax assessments don't. We should be talk taxing property first and income second, especially because a lot of the wealthiest people know that they can just hide their money in income. Er, sorry, in real estate. We know that that's how Trump built his empire of crime. He basically launders money for the mafia and for oil money and for dictators across the planet through the Trump Tower properties. If you're a billionaire looking to stash wealth, yeah, you buy up some property in states or cities with low property taxes like Los Angeles, like New York, you keep your wealth hidden there, and then the property, then the income tax assessors can't come for it. This is happening across the globe. It's happening in London. It's happening in LA. It's happening in Hong Kong. In cities that should be vibrant economic engines, we see a lot of quote-unquote economic activity while the average person is starving. And this, like... There were a couple of graphs that you shared with me today that I thought were really, really good from everyone in. You know, 600,000 oh, yeah. Angelinos are paying 90% of their income in rent. That's, That's an insane such a shocking number. number. When we have like... Three million renters in the city of LA. It's it's the vast majority of people who live in the city are not homeowners, despite the fact that the vast majority of our residential property is single family homes. Almost those single family homeowners are kind of a minority who have an outsized say in our politics. Even beyond that, since two thousand, we've seen median income for renters drop three percent, while median rents have increased thirty two percent. Like, we know where the crisis is and we know what's causing it. We just refuse to fix it because we have these really stupid narratives that, one, it's the dream of everyone to own a home. No, it's effing not. Two, that single-family home ownership is good. No, it's not. It eats up an insane amount of resources. It eats up an insane amount of value. It eats up an insane amount of energy. We need to move away from that. We need to stop seeing private property as the end-all, be-all of our economic output. We're stewards of the land, not owners of the land. And until we start building our cities that understand that humans are only here for a temporary, a short amount of time, and that property is going to be here longer than us, uh, we're going to just keep being stuck in this really stupid cycle of gentrification, urbanization, decay, and then regrowth, uh, where basically a lot of damage is done, a lot of wealth is accumulated, and then when you can no longer accumulate as much wealth in that one place, the money moves to somewhere else to exploit that. Measure EE probably wasn't the best idea, even if it had been run in the right election where it could have won. It's probably not the best idea, but for, for me at least... There's just a lot of selfishness selfishness here showing itself and showing that we really can't rely on homeowners or people who are profiting from our society to decide they're going to pay their fair share. And it's not the homeowners who are going to suffer the, the ill effects of them not paying their property taxes. It's the kids in LAUSD. It's the streets that people are trying to ride on. It's our air quality as we're allowing massive commercial production to keep happening in our city. It's just this like confluence of things that keep happening for decades and decades and decades and every time we have a chance to fix it every time we have a chance to like move forward we find ourselves knocked back into the same position and if we're not making yep. forward progress in LAUSD we're losing ground and that's what's really frustrating is after 30 years of standing still while the waters keep moving uh, we're so far behind that we need radical solutions and we can't even pass milquetoast solutions so who is it that's funding the opposition to uh, Measure EE? 
It's our favorite people, Chris. It's our favorite people, <laughs> like the National Association of Let's Realtors and the California yep. Apartment Association and the California Association of Realtors. Uh, by the way, the, the National Association of Realtors uh, dropped $250,000 to stop property taxes for education saying, oh, hey, look, this is just not the right time to do this. This isn't the right way to do this. Now, in their it's book, what the they're right not disclosing is there's never a right time to raise property taxes yeah. because they're selfish assholes who want to protect their profit over everything else and are willing to take charter shills like Tiana and roll her out as a charter school supporter and an individual supporter while not disclosing the fact that she does a lot of work carrying water for charter schools or that the broads are paying a lot of money for this uh it, it it's I, i'm gonna i'm gonna yell myself hoarse chris i'm going to get all lightheaded and pass out if i keep I going on this but <laughs> the the money behind no on e was the same money that defeated prop 10 it was wealthy organizations funded by developers and realtors who didn't want to take a small decrease to profit to allow kids to learn and that's ultimately the same problem we keep running into is that the wealthiest, most nefarious forces in California get to buy out our elections in order to protect their profits. And not only do they get to buy out the elections, they also get to stymie any progress that we have in the Assembly or in the Senate whenever any good piece of legislation is introduced. They yep. literally were the reason why everything died in the assembly these last month or so because they just will not let anything go through that's going to protect renters that's going to increase you know funding for the schools none of this stuff is in compliance with their agenda and they hold the money so therefore they hold the power and the the one bill that did get through uh 1481 uh, is now limited to three years. Like, you can only not gouge people on rent for three years. Oh, yeah, and it's 10% at this point as far as what's allowed for price increases. Yeah, well, 10% at the max, but that's also, it's still tied to CPI yeah, plus 5%. 7% plus, no, yeah, 7 but it's No, 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 it's, it's 10% total. So if, like, CPI goes up 5%, then you could do a 10% increase with the CPI plus 5. Um, but I if CPI was... 7% was, plus CPI. No, I'm pretty sure it's five. Uh, we can we can uh, check on the state legislature uh, <laughs> on the, the state ledge, but it's it, it's ten percent is the max that you can you can go up. But again, it doesn't matter because it's only for three fucking years. Like in 2025, you can still see a 25 percent rent increase, and that's just not going to help. You know, we we keep seeing wages stagnating, actual take-home pay stagnating, more people pushed into the gig economy where they're not making state minimum wage, let alone the $20 an hour that Lyft and Uber and DoorDash are promising you. Uh, people earn less money, and yet costs continue to go up. That just doesn't work. Like, at some point, the velocity of money really matters. Real income matters. If you're not making enough money to afford your bills, you can't spend that money in taxable ways like nightlife or entertainment or food. It becomes this really destructive cycle. And we're seeing this play out. You know, on a national level today, the jobs report came out. Nationally, we only created 75,000 jobs. 100,000 jobs less than was estimated. And even that's pretty low. Uh, at the same time, yeah. full-time employment is hitting the lowest point since October 2018. Uh, we're beginning to see the breaks 
kick in really hard. Like this recession is going to hit hard and fast. And since California is always at the forefront, we're going to be the ones seeing the impact of that recession first and foremost. Uh, and it's going to be you and me and regular people who pay. It's not going to be the California Association of Realtors who are going to see the pain there first and foremost. We're going to see the pain. And then we're still going to be expected to pay $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, it's... Yeah, I mean, more back of the napkin math, and I've decided uh, capitalism's broken and we should shoot it in the head. <laughs> uh, well, also to confirm, you were correct. The current iteration of uh, AB 1482, as amended from Assembly Member Chu, uh, does currently specify 5% plus the percentage change in the cost of living. Yeah. So I apologize. I had the wrong number. I was remembering no, the, it from the curbed article that I had read. Well, and, the, the, yeah. the 10% is still a max. So there's a max cap on rent. So like if CPI did jump to like 8%, you couldn't do a 13% rent increase. You could only do a 10% rent well, increase. But again, it doesn't matter because least, it's well, only in something. effect for three fucking years. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, everything is broken. At so, the same time, before uh, we before we move on uh, to our, our next big issue, uh, I will give some issue. props to Scott Wiener for trying to repeal Article 34. That bill is moving forward, and that's actually yes. a big one. Like, we, we did have well, that housing win, and that one does matter when we're on the subject so of, like, not a housing and the cost so thereof. so much as it's a proposition to put up on the ballot, right? Yeah. So, again, the voters yeah, could so. defeat that. You know, wealthy homeowners could come out in droves and be like, allow poor people to live near me. Well, I don't fucking think so. Um, and hey guys, just continuing so yeah, November the November 2020, we need to get all the voters registered, and we need to get all the voters turned out, and we need to make sure that as many renters who don't normally vote at nearly the same kind of rates as homeowners get out there and vote. Because if we can repeal Article 34, that is huge. I mean, Sorry it, to it's... You know, uh, yeah, no, uh, repealing Article 34 and then also doing split rules. So, like, Disney has to pay its fair share of property taxes yes, on Prop 13. Absolutely. Those two would be absolute landmark pieces of legislation in the wins. state of California that would fix a lot and unlock a lot of money for us. Uh, at the same time, if you thought the no on EE campaign was brutal and full of lies and disingenuous, <laughs> oh <great>. my <laughs> Buddha, just wait until Disney is facing having to pay actual taxes. Like they're yeah, going to be go just to the like Prop 10, only bigger. Yep. I mean, how much money does Michael Eisner and Bob Iger need? Like, how much money do these assholes really need to be happy? Because I Isn't think... is the answer always more? Yeah, why? I just... <laughs> uh, smashy, smashy. Um, it, it just... It's, it's, it's insane to me that the wealthiest state in the nation has some of the most broken roads and underserved schools in the entire country, let alone the world. Um, and it doesn't have to. Like, the money's there, folks. The value's being created. We're just doing a terrible job at recapturing it. So let's yep. fix that, at least, you know, half-step-wise. Uh, because as this year's point-in-time homeless count showed us, uh, those problems aren't getting better. No, they're not. Uh, in fact, it's, it's bad. It's really, yeah. really bad. And you've probably seen... A whole lot of news coverage on this, like like we mentioned earlier, it is making national news. Uh, Fifty eight oh, international 900. news. They, the the French press oh, is no. all over this. Really? This is the rest of, of the world is looking at us <laughs> and saying, "How did you fuck this up so badly?" Uh, yeah, we did. So fifty eight thousand nine hundred and thirty six of our neighbors are unhoused on any given night in this year. 
That was that was the results come out of it. So just for a little and that bit was, of reference, that was that was that was the county number, not the city number. That's the county number. Yeah, and that's correct. And that's a twelve percent increase for LA County uh, over the twenty eighteen count. The city was thirty six thousand three hundred folks, uh, which is a sixteen percent increase over what was counted in twenty eighteen. So just for a little bit of context for this, in case everybody wasn't aware of what the methodology is here, basically LA County uh, goes out and has some of their staffers, but it's almost entirely. Not almost entirely. Well, the vast majority of the folks who are participating in this count over, what, three nights in the middle of January every year when it's nice and cold and raining, go out and they count how many people that they see who are homeless. And they're counting people based on the number of tents that they see, the number of cars that are clearly inhabited, uh, and the number of people that they see sleeping on the sidewalk, tucked into alcoves and or underneath overpasses, wherever, right? So... One of the things that happens here is that if they see a tent, they only count it as one person. Uh, it, there's entirely possible, in fact, I would even say it's fairly likely that there's probably more than one person in that tent because it is the middle of January, it is cold, it is rainy. People are trying to seek shelter and a great source of warmth when you're in that kind of a cold, nasty environment is body heat with other people sharing your space, which keeps you from freezing to death at night. Also, there's probably a good chance that like there were other tents there that were taken down because, oh, oh my yeah. God, there were a lot of sweeps <laughs> the week before the camp. Like It's oh, almost geez. like the city and the county anticipated the count and was like, let's schedule a bunch of sweeps to make there be less tents. Yeah, so that definitely was a thing that was supposed to be happening, or there were allegations that that was happening. Uh, I can't confirm that it was something that absolutely happened, but we did hear a lot of stories about encampments being pushed out of neighborhoods and then folks from the county or volunteers showing up in areas where they knew there were encampments previously and finding that there was nothing there. And this is yep. something that happens all the time when people are putting in these 311 requests, getting these encampments cleared out. It just moves people from one area of the city to another. And if they get moved from an area that's about to be counted into an area that's already been counted, boom, presto, change there's no more homeless people that are going to be counted in that particular section of the city, uh, which is artificially deflating our count. And, and to be fair, yeah. the, the, you know, the homeless count, the point in time count, comes out of the, the George H.W. Bush administration when there was actually like yes. a federal push to end homelessness. And they, they made some really good progress on ending chronic homelessness to, to an extent. But part of what cities and counties and states have to do in order to unlock federal funds is do this point in time count every year. Um, so states and counties have kind of an incentive to make sure that they are doing this count because they get federal funds. At the same time, yeah. uh, after the, the volunteer, like this point in time count is done, researchers come back out, people who have training in social sciences mm -hmm. and sociology come back out and sort of check the numbers and do their own sort of count. And there is some, uh, you know, data checking to make sure that the counts make sense and that the numbers are right. So there's a little, it, there is some, you know, trying to make up for some of the methodological problems. But at the same time, you know, states and counties and cities have an incentive to show that, hey, we do have homeless people, but not too many. Like, they want to massage the numbers. So when we're talking about 60,000 people in L.A. County unhoused, the real number is probably 100,000. You know, more than yeah. that. There's a significant undercounting happening here, and there are reasons, positive and negative, for the numbers to be massaged down. Absolutely. And one of the things that happens here is they do not count people who are couch surfing 
at their friend's place because they got evicted. They do not count people who are staying at weekly motels. They do not count uh, people in cars and RVs nearly as accurately as they should, although they they are still actually showing an increase in the number of people that are living in cars and RVs despite all of this. One yeah. of the actually really extremely troubling statistics that now that you've, you've referenced the, the um, push to end chronic homelessness, uh, chronic homelessness is the is what the term that is used for people who are suffering from homelessness for more than one year. And a very troubling aspect of the 2019 point in time count for LA County was that we saw a 17% increase in the number of folks who are suffering from chronic homelessness uh, which means that even though we saw a you know a 12% increase in the county, we had a disproportionate number of people who are suffering from chronic homelessness, which means that they are stuck out on the street for longer, which means that we're doing a better job of taking people off of the street uh, and getting them housed in those first few months of them being homeless, but we're, we're failing even more for people who have been out there for a long time. Well, and we're also seeing a, a dramatic rise in people who are, who are homeless for the first time, people who got evicted, people yes. who couldn't afford their place, people who lost a job, people who still have a job but just can't afford rent. Uh, we're seeing that number go up. I, I, to, to roll back a little bit, What's the impact been of Measure H and Measure Triple H, which, again, is the county and state initiatives that, we again, people showed up in L.A. County and L.A. City, and by super majorities, like oh, more yeah. than 66%, in fact, Measure Triple H was like 70% voter approval, voted mm-hmm. to tax themselves every time they make a purchase to pay for uh, building permanent shelter for folks. Uh, what has been the impact of that? So with Measure H, which is uh, meant to be providing services for people throughout the entire county, uh, we can say that it is making progress. Uh, it's definitely making progress. But the problem Measure, here measure is H that being the, uh, the county level and Measure Triple H correct. being the city. Yeah. Yes, correct. So uh, the, when Measure H was passed back in uh, 2017, uh, before that happened, it was uh, we had... 15,131 people who were placed into housing into housing back in 2016. Measure H was then passed. The next year it jumped to 17,558 uh, for 2017. And then this last year it was 21,631, which is great. We're talking more than 20% increase in the number of people who are actually being put into housing. But the problem here is that 27,080 folks became homeless over the same time period, yeah. which means that we had a net uh, increase of more than 6,000 people. This is, uh, this is literally 6, bailing people. out the ocean with a bucket. Like, no matter how oh, yeah. big that bucket is, there's more it, water it's, coming it's in than coming. is being removed. Exactly. So uh, the one of the things that I find personally troubling with all this is that we had more than 900 people, was, I believe it's 918 people who died on the streets in the last year. And those people are not being counted anywhere in this. Um, but those people are the folks who we as a society have failed the most because mm-hmm. nobody, nobody should be dying on the streets homeless. Nobody. That is like the absolute final revocation of human dignity for anyone living in Los Angeles is for you to end up dying homeless on the streets. And And those 918 people need to be counted. That's three people a day. And that's three people a day that we know about. Like the number of of people dying on the street could be higher than that. There there are people who... 
are killed by homelessness. And like being homeless in and of itself is a threat to your health. Even aside from, detrimental. you know, just the, the, the health implications, the catching like MRSA or uh, developing pneumonia or having cancer that can't be treated because you're too poor, just living on the street in the conditions of that that are really stressful. And like, I, I flash back to the couple of weeks I spent you know, living at uh, the Occupy Ice LA encampment, um, and then the few nights yeah. I would spend for the rest of the the month that I was out there, those were sleepless nights. Like it's hard to sleep there. It's it's not just that being unhoused can exacerbate mental illness; it can literally cause it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's it's just it definitely is is a source of things like PTSD for folks, um, and it is dehumanizing to say the least. Uh, one of the, one of the homeless folks who I've, I've interacted with in Koreatown and, uh, actually a couple of times over the last couple of years, uh, he's a great guy, extremely, uh, charismatic and loves to tell you stories. He talks about the fact that it is extraordinarily dehumanizing for LA's response to homelessness to be these sweeps where they're fronting it with sanitation workers. Yep. They're sending out sanitation workers who are treating you like you're human garbage rather than being a human being. It says it speaks volumes of what the city's priorities are, that they're using crews that are meant to clean things up to send them out there. And instead of providing services, they're just out there pushing them away. And this is one thing I want to mention is the, the point in time numbers were announced at the L.A. County Board of Supervisors meeting on Tuesday. Uh, you yes. were there. A bunch of folks from yes, Services Not Sweeps were there. You know who wasn't there? Mayor Boy Eric Garcetti. You know who wasn't yep. there? A single city council member. Like of our 15 or of our 14 non-indicted, non-FBI being investigated city council members who are still <laughs> doing their jobs, I, I will give Jose Weizar a pass because nobody wants to talk to him or be seen with him. The guy's toxic. But of the 14 <laughs> others, including Mike Bonin, who saw one of the largest increases in the city with a 17% increase in his district. I think San Gabriel Valley was the largest with 24% increase, but not a single city council member was in that chamber, despite the fact that that's when the biggest failure of their term is being announced. Like, that's one yeah. thing that's really blowing my mind. You know, Nuri Martinez coming yep. out hard for the Green New Deal, not showing up for yep. homelessness. Herb Wesson for coming out worth. for retail workers, not showing up for homelessness. Paul Koretz yeah. showing up to ban plastic bags, not showing up for homelessness. <laughs> They've got to show up. This is embarrassing, oh, sure. and it's sad, and it's traumatic, and it sucks. They have to be in the room for this stuff. Like, we can't yeah. have our most powerful people in the city running away when our biggest failures are being talked about. And to their credit, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, like, I think they had to be there by law. But all five yes. of them were in the room. All five of them sat through comments. And I've got a couple of comments I wanted to highlight mm. from that. You know, first off, Mark Adam Thomas Rice did peace out real quick. He, yeah, he yeah. Did not stick around for comments. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But I, I, I did have some public comments I did want to highlight. Um, you know, Adam Rice By from RGLA and LA Can gave a really great comment. I wanted to play some of his comments. My name is Adam Rice. Where? I'm with the Los Angeles Community Action Network. We are also with the Services Not Sweeps Coalition. For the last 15 years, the Los Angeles Community Action Network has stated to the city of Los Angeles over and over again that you cannot police your way out of homelessness. 
We hear publicly in newspapers and from members of this board and people in the audience that $614 million is a lot to spend on homeless services. I agree. It should be spent building and building up, building up those 500 vacant lots that we have in Los Angeles as opposed to selling them for developers for pennies on the dollar and then paying them $500,000 per unit to build. The homelessness crisis in Los Angeles is not a surprise. It was created by Mayor Eric Garcetti <laughs> and perpetrated by him and the administration. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about was uh, Jane Wynn from Koreatown for All. She talked about how during this very meeting, there was a surprise sweep in Koreatown. Hi, uh, Hi. my name is Jane. I'm from Koreatown. Uh, while we were going through the numbers and Lhasa was assuring us that they are committed to a compassionate approach to homelessness, um, there was an unnoticed sweep in Koreatown. Uh, a homeless woman just lost many of her things. Um, a man lost most of his clothes, a tent, blankets, um, and our homeless friend lost a week's worth of uh, food. So you can pretend that criminalization does not happen, but it happens on a daily basis. Last year, 900 people died while homeless. So that's two to three people every day. How many of those 918 people would still be alive today if they were allowed to keep their tents, blankets, medication, and other survival supplies? We can start to save lives immediately if we provide basic public health resources instead of sweeps and criminalization. The last comment I wanted to cover was uh, Big Money, and he goes by Big Money, and I love that. Uh, <laughs> and Big Money had this to say. Big Money. Madam Chair, members of the board, I'm Morris Griffin, better known as Big Money Griff, the problem solver. And I rise today in regards to the homelessness. And if there was any way in which we can look at how we're going to resolve and solve this problem, I would ask that we have a charter amendment in the state of California saying that you cannot raise the rent for five years. And when you do raise the rent, you can only raise it two or three percent. That will stop the bleeding. But it has to be a charter amendment. And we can't let the businesses and the corporations who are realtors dupe us again. And what are we to do with them, big money? We're to tell them that they can take their businesses to Phoenix, Arizona, New Mexico, and buy the property there, but you're not going to displace our people here in Los Angeles. We are the city of angels, and I wouldn't have this halo for nothing if I wasn't qualified, bona fide, certified to share with you as to how we can strategize to get our people to realize that in spite of adversity, success can Thank still you. be obtained. Thank That's you. all of my time. Thanks Thank for you. Yours. Next out. speaker, please. There were a lot of folks that took the time and energy and effort to show up at this meeting. It was a five-hour-long meeting to go over yeah, these it, numbers. Yeah, it was so long. It was, it was absolutely insane. And at the same time, like people whose job it literally is to deal with these issues were not there. I mean, hell, even the Yimby showed up to argue that we need density bonuses. Like, bless their hearts. You know, Buddha blessed them for trying, but coming up with the wrong answer. But at least they took the time to be there when our elected officials weren't. And that, I think, is what is angering me more about this upcoming city council election in 2020 than anything else, is these folks are up for votes again. Like, three of them yep. are going to turn out, term out, as it were. But there are other mm -hmm. people who are still running for re-election. And then 
you know, like the odd number districts, they're up for re-election in 2022 uh, unless we recall them before that. And I honestly, there is a big part of my like start some shit with people in power that wants to just recall every odd number district just because of this miserable failure and their inability to act like adults about this. Absolutely. So it's, it's totally fair criticism that the entire city council absolutely should have shown up for this. I mean, if they didn't have meetings that they were required by law to be at, they probably should have taken the time to go, you know, a couple of buildings over and been there to sit through this and be a part of this process because I mean, there were five or six news crews that were there recovering this. There, the room was crowded full of people who were uh, paying attention to this entire pr- uh, presentation from Lhasa, uh, which was extremely insightful. And I mean, the folks who are running like the county public health department agree with the same demands that the services not sweeps people are, are pushing for, uh, ourselves included, where it's like, look, we've got to treat this as a... Uh, a public health emergency and treat these people as human beings and get them the services they need and make sure that there's you know trash collection and that we're keeping these businesses from dumping all of their their rotting food into the areas around these homeless encampments, which then causes rodent infestations, which then causes typhus outbreaks and all of these other things that, that have all these knock-on effects. Using these county and city resources to help make situations better rather than criminalize is what we need to be doing. Um, But in the defense of the electeds, just really quick before you jump in, I just wanted to say that the, uh, the elected officials who are on the homelessness and poverty committee for city hall, uh, those council members, uh, including Bonin O'Farrell, uh, Marquise Harris-Dawson, uh, and I forget who else is on there. I apologize on that one. But they did get the exact same presentation from Lhasa the next day in that Homelessness and Poverty Committee. Um, but everyone who also was the not cameras on that board skipped it. Oh, that is true. That is absolutely true. There were no cameras there. It was in a very, very small room up on the 10th floor of City Hall. Uh, there were microphones recording everything, but there were no news crews. There was no one there to try to call them to account other than the folks that were giving public comment ahead of all of these things being announced uh, in in that committee. But we did remember what had been said uh, the day before at the County Board of Supervisors. So your your point still stands. Yeah. I do want to say even (laughs) the gadflies, like even the N-word dropping Clearly, you know, having a hard time in life, gadflies, made it to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors meeting. Uh, They all got kicked out because that's kind of their mission in life. But even those guys showed up um, and gave a very like a very weird uh, spectacle of one of them saying the N word for no good reason getting yelled at and then another one of them demanding to be able to say the n-word in chambers and it's like you know y'all have a point about like first amendment and freedom of speech and everything but we're talking about your neighbors dying on the street and you're not helping that like go be a gadfly elsewhere the adults are trying to have a conversation um speaking of adults having conversations uh it seems like the la times is even (laughs) beginning to understand the scope of this crisis like they said vote yes on 10 and their editorial board seems to be radicalizing a little bit more uh even with steve lopez uh kind of finally understanding that the scale of this crisis is is going to affect him absolutely so i'm actually just going to read a bit of their uh, scathing editorial that they put out uh, the you know the next day after the after these numbers were released. Quote: 
California and Los Angeles need to do more to fight homelessness even before it happens. That means supporting more tenant protection measures to hold rents at reasonable levels, stop rent gouging, and prohibit unwarranted evictions in order to keep people in their homes when they are at risk. For legislators across the state to lament the horror of homelessness today, even while refusing to pass legislation that protects tenants on the verge of homelessness, is irrational and, frankly, unconscionable. End quote. So what they're talking about there, specifically this past year's Assembly Bills 36, 1481, 1482. Uh, and if you remember from two weeks ago when we did a quick summary of what was going on in the legislature as a whole, uh, two of these three bills all just, com- just completely died before getting out of the Assembly. And the one that passed, like we mentioned earlier, 1482, was so watered down by the time it got out that it can really hardly be considered a strong anti-rent gouging bill at this point. Um, Yeah, so like we said before, 5% plus cost of inflation, maximum 10%. That's still a ton of money, and it sunsets in three years. I mean, come on, people. What are we supposed to be doing here to keep people in their homes if we can't even pass the most basic rent protections for tenants? And the, the thing ah. about the, the rent gouging bill that really just boggles my mind is, you know, if you play the rule of 72 with compound interest, uh, you see that, like, if you're getting a 7% rent, re- 7% rent increase every year, that means that the price of your apartment doubles in a decade. It doesn't get, ten, it doesn't get twice as nice. It's not like your regular, you know, press board so countertop is magically going in. to turn into a granite mm-hmm. countertop or you'll get a gym and a pool. No, no, you're just paying more for the same square footage and the same depreciating building. Uh, also, your wages... They're not going to double every decade. My Buddha, what do we think this is? The 1940s when people actually got paid well and they had unions? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's bleak, folks. It's super bleak. But take solace in the fact that people are out there doing organizing work on the ground every day. Come yep. out and join us at K-Town for All on Saturdays, doing outreach at the Emanuel Presbyterian Church, 3 p.m., uh, three Saturdays out of the week, four of them if there's five Saturdays. We only spend one Saturday a week uh, you know, talking about what the organization is going to be doing, but most of the time we're out there doing outreach to the folks in the community, providing you know, water, wet wipes, food, the basic you know, human dignity of interaction and contact, uh, things that the city is failing to provide. Uh, get out there and join us at Ground Game. We meet up every Thursday from 7.30 till 9, sometimes 10 o'clock, but mostly 9. We're pretty good about getting people out of there on time. 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, two blocks away from the Western Hollywood Metro Station. These are places where you can get involved and actually make meaningful differences. Uh, join us at Sunrise. We've got those hub meetings that are happening, what, it's every, every couple of Sundays? No, every uh, first Sunday of every month, and then there's first also Sunday. a bunch of there we go. bunch of Zoom calls you can jump on that happen weekly. If you oh, want to yeah. get involved, there's so much capacity out there for you to get in and get to work right now, and it's it's a trade off. Uh, but here's the long and the short of it: the climate crisis is here. These issues are not getting better in the immediacy. The the crisis on our border is not going away. You know, the it's the arable land worse. in Guatemala that has been eroded by overproduction and by droughts and by climate effects, it's not going to suddenly spring back to life. We've got a generation or two that's going to take concerted effort to fix this. And we need to do that. It's not a matter of like, hey, recycle a little bit and, and you know, that'll be okay or go vegan. Like, those are good things and you should do them. We're not solving this through individual changes. We need systems change. We'll only get systems change when a critical mass of people stand up and show up and say, 
we're not going to stand for this anymore because we know how to fix this stuff. We have the answers. We know what to do. We just don't have the traction in power. Exactly. People at the top don't want to piss off their rich donors. They don't want to scare the people who fund their campaigns. They don't want to scare the people who cut them their paychecks. They don't want to scare the people who literally control industries, which I, I get. But at the same time, we're literally destroying the only place in this universe we have to live. There is no planet B. It is a cold, dead vacuum outside of our atmosphere. We can't live there. And, you know, maybe President Trump is right and Mars at some point has annexed our moon. Uh, but we're not getting to Mars anytime soon. That's not a plan where we're going to be able to flee to. You know, this is it. Like, this is the chance we got. And something to, to think about when you're like, well, is it really going to be, you know, that bad? Imagine if human civilization, if all of this that we did have did collapse. And this has happened before. It happened in the Bronze Age when uh, drought and famine and warring tribes destroyed nascent civilization and all of the trade routes stopped being productive and only one civilization, the Egyptian civilization, really survived. Like, we've seen a total systems collapse happen before. If that happens to us, we've pulled all of the easy-to-get energy resources out of the ground. We got the easy oil. We got the easy coal. We got the easy-to-reach rare-earth minerals. We can't rebuild this level of technology immediately. It takes millions of years to remake these kinds of fossil fuels. It takes millions of years for those geological processes to happen. We don't have millions of years. I, I still held out hope that, like, squirrels will survive and will rebuild representative democracy. But, you know, we're talking millennia for that to happen. This is it, folks. We're only going to plant 60% of the crops that we should be planting in this country this year because of the storms in the Midwest. The climate crisis is here. It's literally killing your neighbors. And we can do something to help. Let's do that so it's not futile. We can make a stand. And I don't mean to be like overly urgent or like doomsday apocalypse because this isn't going to be the clap of thunder and the world comes crashing down. It's going to be the slow slouch into economic depression, into starvation, into environmental collapse. If you didn't like the movie Interstellar, you're going to hate the reality Interstellar. So hopefully this lights a fire under your ass. Because there's capacity for you to help. There's capacity for us all to help. To take care of each other in big ways and small ways. But the point is for you to plug in and for you to do something. And not just sit here and do nothing. Um, but yeah, so that is all absolutely correct. We have the ability to seize the power and make these changes. We just need to get out there and actually do it. Uh, thank you everybody for tuning in and listening to us week after week. We genuinely support it. Uh, hit us up at groundgamela.org. Uh, every dollar that you can contribute, we promise we will be putting it to good things and getting out there and changing the vote, making this stuff happen all over the city. Uh, yeah, we can't do it without you, so it's fun. Thanks. And again, always uh, always feel free. You can follow me on Twitter at Bushido Squirrel. You can follow Chris uh, on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle again? I keep forgetting. Christopher Roth. It's all Christopher Roth. big thing. <laughs> and yep. and if you want to, you can always reach out to us through email. We're podcast at groundgamela.org. Uh, stay yep. safe. Organize. Organize your neighbors. Organize your community. We're going to survive this. We're going to thrive. But we're going to do that together. Have yourselves a lovely week.
log. 30 and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. 